The Remedial Herstory Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the primary and secondary history curriculum. To help us meet our goal, we produce media, lesson plans, and so much more. You can check it out on our website, www.remedialherstory.com. Our project is funded through grants and by patrons, potentially like you. Thank you to our patrons, Jeff, Barbara, Christian, Kent, Jamie, Jenna, Nancy, Megan, Leah, Mark, Nicole, Anne, Sarah, Alicia, Katia, Michelle, Jessica, Laura, and Jackie. If you would like to join these wonderful people and become a patron, you can head over to patreon.com and become a supporter of the Remedial Herstory Project. You too can help us reform education and allow women to be seen, heard, and complicated. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In this episode, we are going to the Vietnam War. War. Huh. <laughs> right? That's the song, right? It is the song. Okay. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. In this episode, we're going to be asking the question, how active were women in the Vietnam War effort? And we are going to be joined on the podcast by Dr. Barbara Tischler, the chair of the Remedial History Board of Directors. She's amazing. She is amazing. She is a rock star. Barbara has her PhD in history from Columbia. She now works in um, social studies ed as well as history at Hunter College. Um, And she is just a wealth of knowledge. And we're so lucky to have her on the board Mm -hmm. for Remedial History. She's also one of the primary authors for our YouTube series on U.S. history. And so we're just really grateful to have her. Vietnam is a special topic for her. She's written a couple books on the era, um, and she'll talk about those uh, in in our conversation. And she's also like a child of this period, you know, like yeah. this is her this is her jam. And she, you know, told me that this was um, a topic that not a lot of people were talking about in a historic sense, more of a current event sense when she started teaching about it. Cool. So I think she has a lot to contribute and a lot for us to learn about. Brooke, what do you know about the Vietnam War? Not a ton, to be totally honest. Most of what I understand is from media that I've seen, so I'm not actually sure how accurate a lot of it is. But Mm. there's so many movies and books and, um, you know, fiction and things like that that is really interesting. All all that comes to mind in my blank head right now is the movie with Robin Williams. Yeah. (laughs) Good morning, Vietnam. Yeah. Hey, that's not a bad reference. Yeah, so Vietnam was a French colony. um, And after World War II, they started, like a lot of places, started seeking independence. And so the war is really an independence war for the Vietnamese. Okay. The French fight and try to keep control of Vietnam and don't do a super good job of that. And eventually, um, Vietnam becomes this sort of like independent state with, you know, the northern part falling to the Viet Cong and and communism and the Mm -hmm. southern part um, basically being funded by the United States to exist as a capitalist um, 
democracy. And we're involved in this war effort pretty much from go, um, from, from the break with France. But we don't actually, like, have any formal declarations or anything. And we don't even acknowledge that we're there really for a decade. Um, but we are like sending money and weapons and there are like nurses and people, like people on the ground in Vietnam and we're pretending that we aren't there. So it's really interesting. And and I was really surprised to learn just how soon women were present, um, as part of this effort, to protect Southern Vietnam. Um, but I think it's important to frame it as an independent struggle. Okay. And despite the fact that it's a, it's a communist independent struggle, it's, it's independence nonetheless. And you could argue, and um, Ken Burns in his wonderful series on Vietnam, I think does a good job showing that um, communism was not the goal. The goal was independence. Right. And, um, and I think if we frame it that way, it it changes the story a little bit. It makes sense to me. Yeah. What American wouldn't support <laughs> independence? I can live there. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I'm really excited to have Barbara on the podcast. And why don't we start by having her introduce herself? Go, Barbara. My name is Barbara Tischler. Um, I'm a historian and former musician. I played the oboe for many years, but that... Uh, only entered into my scholarship early on in my career. Uh, But I've studied a number of different uh, topics and periods in American history. Uh, My PhD is from Columbia University, and I wrote about American music in the concert hall. But then I was able to have the opportunity to teach some of the earliest courses uh, on the 1960s. And I did that at Barnard College uh, in the 1980s, when the 1960s was still part of people's lives and folks were, would say things to me like, that's not history, that's what we grew up with. Um, my second book is a collection of essays called Sights on the 60s. And my third book is much more recent. It's a biography of Muhammad Ali and written by someone who doesn't really like boxing very much or understand boxing. Uh, I think you need to know the subtitle. The subtitle of the book is A Man of Many Voices. And I talked about Ali's different ways of speaking as a fighter, as a civil rights icon, as a Muslim, as a man, as a human being. And the book was published about a year before he died. And of course, in his last few years, he was unable to speak at all. So that was the kind of ironic tragedy of the epilogue to my book. Um, I've been interested in women's history for quite a while, written about women in uh, the Vietnam era, which is our subject for today written about women in the anti-war movement, both civilian and military. Um, And I'm just generally interested in women's history as part of the larger narrative of history. Well, me too. (laughs) (laughs) So um, how did you transition from music to Vietnam specifically and and, um, getting into war? Because that's a big transition. Those are different topics. Was it the era that drew you there? I think it was the era. I think it was teaching about the 60s in general, uh, going from the first college course I ever taught was called Jazz, Rock, Folk, and Pop. I really wanted to call it the Social History of American Popular Music. And that kind of got me interested in the context for music. So certainly from the 60s, there's a lot of political and social context. Um, But I got interested specifically in Vietnam through teaching. And if you're going to teach about the 60s, you have to teach about the war. And if you're going to teach about the war, you have to learn 
everything you can. And I fell into uh, on the uh, with the help of an acquaintance at Temple University. I fell into a microfilm collection in the contemporary culture collection of GI anti-war newspapers. And while I am not a military person and I am not a veteran, I can say that I'm a veteran of having read no fewer than 85 GI anti-war papers on microfilm. And if you can survive that without too many headaches, it's pretty good. I learned a great deal. Um, And those were the voices represented in those papers of the soldiers themselves, some of whom happen to be women, although women are not as represented in the GI press uh, as I had hoped when I was starting to do my research. But it was a little bit accidental, a little bit a result of learning about alternative newspapers um, and then pursuing that that, uh, aspect of the study. So here I am. Here you are in all your glory. (laughs) Well, I'm so excited to learn from you. So um, if you would tell me, where would you start talking about women in the Vietnam War? Where does that begin for you? I think the first thing I would ask people to think about is the time period, the context. And I used to say in my teaching that in teaching about Vietnam, anything happened that happened between 1954 and 1973 is fair game. And so you have to stop and think about what happened on those two dates. How how is this decade, these two decades framed? 1954, of course, the time when the French said, well, we're not going to do this anymore. And the United States, for various reasons, having more to do with the Soviet Union and NATO than with Southeast Asia, the United States took over the fight. And then in 1973, when um, Americans finally left Vietnam. And I have in mind the question that you're always asking, Kelsey, where were the women? And the answer is everywhere. So I would like to begin today talking about women that most people don't know anything about. And that is the Vietnamese women. When we think of Vietnam and we think of visual images, one of the first that comes to mind for me is the image of the little nine-year-old girl running away from uh, napalm, which the Vietnamese called liquid fire. And this was a very important photograph taken by a man named Nick Ut for the Associated Press. And it was published in 1972. And that little girl was named Kim T. Kim Phuc. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. She survived 17 surgeries because she was afflicted by the liquid fire. They got her on the back when she ran away, as we can see. She was educated in Vietnam and in Cuba and finally found her way to Canada and now serves as a UNESCO goodwill ambassador. What I found remarkable remarkable about her story is that she says she has forgiven those who've harmed her, which I thought was quite remarkable. So the Vietnamese people sometimes get lost when Americans start to talk about the war, and we shouldn't do that. So in addition to this little girl, we now know a lot more than we knew years ago about women who served in the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam, the Viet Cong. Some were soldiers and some were factory workers. What's really interesting is that the Vietnamese women are often pictured with weapons, and you do not see American women in Vietnam with weapons. And in fact, one complaint of some of the women, both nurses and other uh, military women, was that they they had no weapons training and they felt that they were defenseless. They wanted more weapons training. But back to the Vietnamese women, they drove trucks, they laid booby traps, they found various ways to harass American troops. They also served as spies. For themselves, 
Vietnamese society was not very kind to women, but their service in the war helped to gain them a number of rights, things like bans on wife beating and forced child marriages. And we might think of that as pretty primitive, but these were big steps forward uh, for the Vietnamese women. How did American soldiers look at Vietnamese women? Uh, in a number of ways. There were the soldiers, of course, uh, the women soldiers whom they never saw, the women factory workers who produced the weapons, uh, whom also were invisible to the soldiers. There was a character with the derogatory name Mama San, typically an older woman who might be hiding a gun in her bag if she appeared to be selling rice or bread or appeared to be begging. She might shoot you as easily as take some of your money for whatever she was selling. Uh, this, this image underlined the Americans' perception that they really couldn't tell who were their friends and who were their foes in Vietnam. Many American soldiers provided medical aid and real genuine help to Vietnamese women and their children. Most of the men were gone fighting in the military, uh, but they could never trust uh, the people that they had helped. And of course the soldiers on one day might be providing medical aid, vaccinations and other care, and weeks later might be torching these small villages. So the, this story is just filled with contradictions. The other images of young women, uh, Vietnamese women who were so poor that they were forced to turn to prostitution. And of course that is another whole story along with a, a generation, a small group of young, young babies born of those unions. It was illegal to fraternize with the enemy, but we're talking about young men and women in a war zone. So that was another story to be told. And I think we can learn more about those Vietnamese women. We're learning more as the sources are becoming available and as Vietnam is becoming a little bit more open and more available to American scholars. So I think that's the part of women's history that we know the least about. So I'd love now to talk a little bit about people we know much more intimately, and that's the American woman of the 1950s and 60s. Let's think maybe early 60s, which is when uh, most of these young women volunteered uh, to serve in Vietnam. How do we look at American women during this period? They were told to be helpful, but not assertive, except in matters relating to their homes and families. This, is, this goes back to the woman's sphere. There are things that are women are supposed to do and things that men are supposed to do, and almost never the twain shall meet. They were regarded as maternal, generally not possessing the skills to work outside their homes, except in jobs that we today would call feminized. Lower grade teaching, nursing, secretarial work, being a manicurist, um, being a licensed practical nurse, something like that. Those were all considered extensions of a woman's natural instinct to be a helpful caregiver. Um, and there were, of course, we know there were women doctors and lawyers and um, people in businesses, but they were by far not the majority. And by far they played the men's game as the men played it. <clears throat> women in general were not valued for their intelligence as much as their emotions and their instincts. Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique is still a long ways away. It wasn't published till 1963 when she talked about the problem that has no name. And she suggested that women might actually be good for something more advanced than helping with fourth grade math homework. That's, that's a novel concept. <laughs> Very novel concept in 1963. We do see women in the early civil rights movement, but Sarah Evans has helped us to understand that they often felt frustrated at being pushed into back 
back of the uh, of the not back of the bus, but back of the of the room roles, making coffee, running the Mimeo machine, being referred to as girls and not being thought of as quite as valuable as their male counterparts. And thinking about it, I think nurses and this time embodied the ideal 1950s, early 60s American woman. They were helpful. They helped doctors. They cared for patients. Except in emergency situations or in an intensive care situation, they were rarely called upon to make real decisions. They followed orders. For some women, volunteering for Vietnam was both a patriotic duty and an adventure, an opportunity to do more, to be more, to have more autonomy as a nurse. One scholar named Rennie Christopher uh, talked about the 50s image of women among the soldiers. And he said, women often felt that they were the supporters and not participants in their own right. Women in the military often felt that what they were doing was not as important as what the men were doing. And that in addition to their own jobs, they also had the responsibility of acting as mother, sister, girlfriend to the soldiers. Having absorbed gender role stereotypes of the larger American society, these women expected to submerge their own needs and to take care of the men whose role as combat soldiers was valued much more highly than that of nurses or support personnel. Of course, once they got to Vietnam, many women found out that they, especially in the more remote areas, they needed to be more autonomous. They needed to step up. They needed to make decisions. And many women really thrived on that experience. Nursing would never be the same. Sometimes the gender stereotypes showed up in newspaper headlines. The Philadelphia Bulletin had a big story called Our Soldiers in Skirts Go Off to War. Uh, Red Cross women were often referred to as donut dollies. They rarely provided donuts in Vietnam. That's more of a domestic um, activity. But the Red Cross women wore blue seersucker dresses and stockings, just like women at home. If you look at images in advertisements in the 1950s and early 60s, of women cleaning their houses. They're doing so in lovely dresses and heels, which I find quite astounding. I've never cleaned my house in heels. I hope no one else ever does. Women could experience hostility. One Marine said, we may have to have you here, but we don't want you here. They could even be harassed. Sometimes they were expected to serve as ornaments to make the, the life of officers much more bearable. And that could include sexual harassment, but also just unwanted flirtations, unwanted attention. People at home sometimes didn't understand why a woman would volunteer for Vietnam. Some women were accused of being promiscuous or even being gay. And that in the early 60s, that really was a very powerful accusation. But we also see a lot of evidence that these women volunteered for the same reasons that the men did, not draftees now, but the men who volunteered for Vietnam. Patriotism, independence, a sense of adventure, and the opportunity to do something worthwhile. A United Servicemen's Fund newspaper article wrote, for many, it's the first time they don't have to worry about housing, medical attention, etc. Many wax, that's the Women's Army Corps, many wax like the Army. As women, they can be on their own without men, something very unusual for women of their class. And he was thinking of many of the women who enlisted non-nurses and, and non-officers, but uh, enlisted women. When the Vietnam Women's Memorial finally opened in November of 1993, on Veterans Day, by the way, 1993, many of the women who came to see the, the memorial say they have no regrets about their service in spite of the obstacles. 
Every day was surreal, one said. Another one said, you couldn't cry. No matter what, you couldn't cry. And also, the war goes home with you. And we certainly know that that was true of men who served in Vietnam. It was also true of women who suffered from PTSD. Some suffered from the effects of Agent Orange. And many just had a challenge, as their male counterparts did, in readjusting to civilian life. Vietnam really was surreal. Women played so many different roles in Vietnam. They were nurses. We'll talk more about them. They were Red Cross workers, mainly providing help and care. They were USO workers and entertainers. Bob Hope brought many, many women entertainers to serve the troops in Vietnam. Humanitarian groups sometimes brought women doctors. The military does not seem to have. I haven't found any women doctors in the military. They were air traffic controllers, intelligence officers, clerks, and outside the military, journalists, foreign correspondents. The first nurses came to Vietnam in, in 1956 to train South Vietnamese nurses. That's very, very early. It's before we were even saying we had troops there. Just advisors. There's no real war. There are no real troops there. Uh, in 1964, General Westmoreland requested that non-medical wax come to Vietnam to train women in Arvin, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam. In total, there were close to 11,000 nurses. They served in army hospitals. In the Navy, they served on ships. In the Air Force, they helped with evacuations. One in particular evacuation of babies who were taken out of Vietnam to adoptive homes in this country. Eight nurses were killed in Vietnam. Eight women are on the wall. Only one, Sharon Cape, was killed in combat. The others died of disease or plane or helicopter crashes. We know that 59 civilian women died in Vietnam. Hey, Kelsey, I don't think our listeners know about the new upcoming project that we're working on. Which one? The video series. Oh, the video series. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. So I thought we could tell them a little bit about what the project is, how it's funded, and what the purpose is. Well, we are producing a video series, 25 episodes on U.S. history, 25 episodes on world history. And the point of these is to provide teachers who don't know women's history with like a 10 minute video that they could play for their class. So say you're teaching a lesson on the American Revolution. Here's 10 minutes about women in that time period. Amazing. And it could be a foundation that you can springboard from and do something really cool on those women. And these videos are, yes, you, but they are yeah. fully scripted. You can look at the scripts. They're nicely edited with some really great content. Yep. They're vetted by historians, two PhDs, at least in history. So, you know, people smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to be free and they're on YouTube. And they'll be on YouTube. They also have a comedian from Hollywood yes. who is helping to make them funny. So it's, you know, because I'm like kind of boring. Uh, no, they're very <laughs> funny. But that's awesome. So they're really engaging and they're really cool content. So more to come there. So we yeah. have those coming out. And those are funded through grants? Through grants, through our patrons. Okay. Um, so their, you know, contributions to us through Patreon 
are supporting that project. And then we also have a lot of people that have been donating through Instagram, Facebook. We have a Venmo account. You can find us there. That's awesome. Um, and they're making those contributions. So yeah, it's an amazing thing. And if this is something that you're like, yes, that's what teachers need. Any, every penny helps because it is a really expensive project. So. It, yeah, totally. And we had a match donor for a while there too, yeah. which is really cool. So definitely if you're interested in those, yeah, feel free to donate. You can donate right on our website, Instagram and Venmo. Yeah. Which is awesome. Great work. I'm excited to see the rest of those videos. Oh, Brooke, thanks for your support of the project. Awesome. We talked about the motivation for, for the nurses in particular. Nurses were all volunteers. All the women were volunteers. One captain wrote to her family from a place called Play Coup. For the past three days, I've been running on about four hours sleep. I love it. This was an exciting time for her. A Lieutenant Pamela Donovan said she was not afraid at all to serve in Vietnam. This was a response to John Kennedy's ask not what your country can do for you. But the work was dangerous. Women served in combat zones, but supposedly were not actually in combat. Tell that to a nurse whose hospital was bombed or who was under, under attack. The work was incredibly stressful as patients could be severely or even mortally wounded, but the nurses did their job. Again, that refrain, you couldn't cry. You just had to suck it up and do what need, was needed to be done. The Red Cross workers, who are sometimes called donut dollies, started coming to Vietnam in 1962. They brought a touch of home to these huge military bases, places like Da Nang and Tan Sanut that were almost cities in and of themselves, but also to the most remote landing zones, where their goal was to give soldiers a break from the war. They would bring puzzles and games. They would write letters home for wounded soldiers and just in general, try to make them feel more comfortable. To serve in the Red Cross, you had to have a college degree and their program was called the Supplemental Recreational Activities Program to which one soldier responded, your presence saved my sanity. <clears throat> one USO a worker, not a, an entertainer, but a worker described getting very close to a whole platoon of guys on a remote landing zone. After an absence of a couple of weeks, she returned by helicopter to that landing zone to find that the position had been overrun and all the soldiers were killed. So if you can imagine the emotional impact of having gotten close to these young men, your own age, most of these women were in their early twenties, um, and then finding that they'd all been killed, the entire position had been wiped out. Speaking of the USO, the USO brought entertainers as well as workers. Uh, GIs enjoyed the USO shows. They were they featured often chorus girls, singers, magicians, um, comics, people like Bob Hope who would say silly things about the war, anything to try to make a little part of their day a little less oppressive about the war. These shows were very elaborate and Bob Hope had been doing this for decades. He started in Vietnam in 1964. And I don't know if these names will mean much, but some of his famous women entertainers were Joey Heatherton, Connie Stevens, and Margaret, and many, many, many scantily clad dancers who were designed, were supposed to, you know, make the guys feel good, I guess. The prevailing view in journalism was that women could not report from, from a war zone, but of course, women had reported from Spain in the 1930s. There were women correspondents in World War II. There were women correspondents in Korea. And they reported what they saw. They were rarely embedded with troops the way we saw in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. But Gloria Emerson reported for the New York Times 
and earned a lot of praise and, and um, a lot of awards for her stories. She's one of the people who reported on what were called the five o'clock follies. These were the daily briefings held by the military to report body counts and territory taken. Often the body counts were inflated. Often the territory taken today was lost tonight, taken again tomorrow. Uh, it was a sad, sad story for sure. Some women voiced some grievances through the use of the GI papers, both in Vietnam and in this country, more in this country. I think honestly, the women serving in Vietnam were too busy to, to voice grievances. Enlisted women were more likely to be working class and to experience harassment. Officers were frustrated at the lack of respect. And remember that comment by the Marines, we have to have you here, but we don't want you here. And women were not permitted to command units that included men until 1972. So women, while they were important, were not were still considered something of a second class of, of soldiers. Uh, today's army is actually quite different. We see women very, very much in the fray, close to combat. They describe their experiences, but much of what the women write in the GI anti-war papers is not using the language that feminists at home are beginning to use about oppression. They're simply describing what they're experiencing. In Chinook Air Force Base in Illinois, we find a male reporter wrote the following. The WAFs, and those are the women Air Force uh, women, stationed at Chinook are oppressed and discriminated against by the brass. They are referred to and treated in materialistic ways as decorations for the dreary offices of the brass and a release for the airmen on Friday night. The brass refer to WAFs as prostitutes and sex objects and cannot seem to think of women as normal human beings capable of experiencing emotion and frustration, just as you and I feel as men. I thought that was quite a remarkable observation coming from a man in the military. A lot of women feared being accused of being gay. One whack at Fort Bragg in North Carolina observed and described her own anxiety. Whack companies got us whacked so uptight and paranoid about being reported as gay that we avoid sitting together in the dining room or on buses. It gets pretty lonely here when you can't even be close friends with other whacks for fear of being labeled gay. And she ended her article, don't let them scare you from relating to your whack sisters. The GI anti-war papers were anything from a single mimeographed sheet to four to eight page tabloid papers that were published typically off base and when soldiers were off duty. However, it became illegal for soldiers to possess a GI anti-war newspaper. You could get busted on an Article 14 charge, which would not send you to the stockade, but would give you some awfully unpleasant duties. And so you find a lot of the GI papers have on their masthead a little note that says, it is legal for you to possess this paper. They can't, it was really not legal for the brass to bust you, but that's one thing they tried to do. Um, generally, soldiers could um, engage in activities against the war, off duty and off base, but it could get you into trouble. You could, you could have some real difficulty. On the home front, many women supported the war effort as a crusade against communism. Many women engaged against protests and called on the military to achieve total victory. Women in conservative organizations such as Young Americans for Freedom were eager supporters of the war. And it's important to mention them as well as the women who were against the war. There's also a third group, 
women who supported the war but were most focused on bringing home their sons, husbands, and other relatives as soon as possible, especially as the death tolls began mounting in the late 60s. They raised their voices in support of the soldiers and the politics of anti-communism as well. In the 1968 presidential election, many of these women were most likely to support Richard Nixon, who promised peace with honor. I'm gonna say just a few words about the civilian anti-war movement and its connections to Vietnam itself. Um, as the Vietnam War dragged on into the late 60s and early 70s, you begin to hear from soldiers who served at that time, nobody wanted to be the last guy to die in Vietnam. I've heard that many, many times. People also say that it was a different war in the mid 60s than it became in the late 60s and early 70s when it just dragged on, the death tolls got higher and higher. By 1968, there were 500,000 military personnel in Vietnam and we couldn't seem to win it. And so the anti-war movement at home grew in size and in, in its power. Organizations such as the Students for Democratic Society founded in 1960 and active as many as 300 colleges staged campus demonstrations against military recruitment, war research and participation in the war. So it was not just the shooting and the fighting, it was the research that was going on at universities uh, to, to promote different kinds of weaponry. Uh, it was ROTC training, mostly for men, but women were very active in these protests. The Tet Offensive of January of 1968 was a defining point for many in their opposition to the war. While the American military claimed victory, the fact remained that North Vietnamese forces could stage coordinated attacks on American military installations on Air Force bases and even invade the American embassy grounds. That really pointed to the vulnerability of the United States in Vietnam. And shortly after that, when Walter Cronkite said that he no longer supported the war effort and no longer trusted the Johnson administration, President Johnson said, well, if we've lost Cronkite, we've lost the war. We've lost the people in this, in this uh, struggle. By 1969, frustration with continuing involvement in Vietnam led SDS to demand more direct action. And you see more militant action on college campuses. Um, people like Bernadine Dorn, who led an SDS faction that published a manifesto called, You Don't Need a Weatherman to Know Which Way the Wind Blows, uh, became more and more powerful and important in the anti-war movement. Although here again, I'm thinking again about Sarah Evans' work, uh, women in the anti-war movement could often feel that their efforts were subordinate to those of the men. By 1970, Dorn was on the FBI's most wanted list. I guess that's a pretty important distinction. Um, where she remained for several years, she's now a lawyer in Chicago, married to Bill Ayers, who became famous once again uh, in the Obama administration. Uh, participation in SDS and the Weather Underground uh, encouraged some women to join more radical feminist groups as they frequently felt that their voices were not as heard as much as they had wished in the anti-war movement. There were a number of celebrity women who protested involvement in the Vietnam War in a variety of ways. They might show up at a demonstration or as with the case with Jane Fonda, they would participate in a troupe of actors and musicians called FTA. I'll get to that in a moment. She was joined by Holly Near, Donald Sutherland and others who performed in anti-war coffee houses, usually right outside military bases at places like Fort Bragg in North Carolina. 
And they called their shows FTA, which was sometimes called Fun Travel and Adventure, which was the name of one anti-war newspaper, sometimes called Free the Army, or in more popular parlance of the day, F the Army. They provided entertainment for soldiers and coffee houses. In May of 1970, Fonda distributed copies of a GI paper called the Fatigue Press at Fort Hood. She was arrested and barred for the base from the base, but she spoke out against the fact that soldiers were prohibited from possessing anti-war literature. An interesting footnote here, men and women, especially here in the United States, in the GI anti-war movement, were absolutely against the war. But usually if they list the 10 things that are their demands, it top of the list, near the top of the list, is their right to free speech as American citizens and their right to possess GI anti-war papers. Had they been civilians, those rights would never have been called into question. But the military felt that once you join the military, and the courts tended to back them up here, once you join the military, the military set the terms and conditions of your employment, shall we say. Fonda came to political consciousness late in her 30s. She was not a college kid. And she told Life magazine, I never felt politics touched my life, but as a revolutionary woman, I'm ready to support all struggles that are radical. In 1972, Fonda traveled to North Vietnam and posed with soldiers, both men and women, on an anti-aircraft gun that was used against Americans in bombing raids. She spent two weeks in the North, spoke with a voice of Vietnam radio, implored the United States to stop the bombing, um, implored prisoners of war to tell their families to support George McGovern and to support the peace movement. She also spoke about the anti-war movement and how important it was for the United States to get out of Vietnam. When she returned, Watergate was beginning to break. And interestingly, the Fonda headlines kind of get subsumed under the Watergate scandal. But Fonda was hailed as a hero by a few and more broadly condemned as a traitor by others. In 1988, she issued an apology during an interview with Barbara Walters. But years later, and I think even till today, you can go to internet websites and find a lot of hate messages decrying the actions of the person they called Hanoi Jane. So she was not well regarded and not respected. It's fascinating the way that communism plays into this. And previously on the podcast, we had an episode with Jackie Nelson talking about women fighting in um, Soviet Russia uh, during World War II and how, you know, actually it's a woman who holds, you know, the highest sniper kill and, uh, you know, the the night witches and, and things like that. And so it's interesting the contrast um, in the way that American women are treated during wartime, um, and also the perception on the home front that to be opposed to communism, um, and and there not to bring in that whole uh, issue of democracy versus um, communism, but but at least in the way that women are treated during the war, you mentioned so many things about um, about both the empowerment and um, diminishing of the roles that women played there. Um, and I think that's it's just a fascinating, I'm kind of wrapping my mind around that as I'm listening. What I find fascinating about that, not at this at this moment, not so much the communist or anti-communist issue, but the fact that this service was very, very difficult. Even had there been no harassment, sexual or otherwise, serving in a place 
so foreign, so far away from home, in a war that became so untenable, so difficult to support, <clears throat> was really difficult for both men and women. And now, years later, we have women saying, I have no regrets, I'd do it again. That there was something about that, that some kernel of whether it was patriotism or service or for the nurses just providing health care that kept them going under horrific, I mean, it's a miracle that more women weren't killed, um, especially military women, but it kept them going and it kept them serving. Women were sometimes, not as often as men, but sometimes attacked on their way home in American airports and spat upon and, and had insults yelled at them uh, because they were soldiers. They answered the call of duty. And you can understand the anger on the anti-war side, but from these soldiers, they were kind of caught in the middle, I think, trying to do their job. It was particularly for draftees. This is now the men. Um, that's a whole other subject about how difficult it would be to oppose the draft and not go. Then what do you do? So, But the women were all volunteers. And, and even they faced some of that hostility when they returned. Seriously. Barbara, thank you so much for all of this information. I am... I mean, first of all, I made sort of mental notes the whole time. Like these are amazing primary source quotes that you have pulled. And I am so excited for teachers to be able to put them into their classes and share sort of these um, visions that those people trapped in their time had, you know, of, of um, and, and words that they had and used um, with their classes. Where could someone go if they wanted to find more information or um, are there texts or sources that you would recommend teachers um, seek out in order to get this in with more ease? This is not easy. Uh, there was a, a wave of writing in the 90s and early 2000s, uh, books about the women's movement in more generally or women. Um, I would recommend my own edited book called Sites on the 60s, Rutgers University Press, 1992. So I don't know how easy it is to get. Uh, but there are a number of articles in there about um, women in the movement, about the anti-war movement. Um, I know that a, a number of scholars who are doing this work were writing for different, different, um, different collections at the time, there is a collection by Abital Block of essays on women in war. Some of the, the, the quotes that you mentioned come from an article that I wrote in a journal that was really itself an alternative journal. A young woman named Kali Tal decided that she was going to publish a journal all by herself, and it was amazing. It was called Vietnam Generation. I don't know where that's archived, but if someone were to look at for it, um, you could probably find it. It published for several years um, and suffered the fate of little little publishing houses all, everywhere. There was just not enough resource. There were not enough resources to keep it going. JSTOR for for teachers who have access to that for scholarly work. Write to me. I'll be glad to share. You know where some of these sources are. I'd be glad to help people. Um, but it's. Um, it's hard to find, it sounds like. You did a lot of digging and, and dense reading. <laughs> For a while, it was easy to find, but the, <clears throat> these books went into and out of print over a period of about 20 years, and now 
people are far more people, I think, are researching conservatism these days than are researching um, movements like the anti-war movement or even the Great Society. It's sort of a little bit out of fashion. These mm. things have their moments, their historical moments. Mm. Uh, but for for women, of course, it's it's very important. One thing I would suggest, and I'm going to try to do this with you and other participants. Uh, in the retreat this summer, is to use visual images, to find visual images. And it's easy. You can Google uh, nurses in Vietnam and find lots of different images and then ask students, what do they see? And what do they see that's incongruous about a landscape like Vietnam and a nurse in a starched white uniform? She didn't stay in that uniform very long, I can tell you. Um, but using the visual images to, to try to prompt students to think about uh, what was happening there, what was going on there. I love that. That is a strategy listed in a lot of um, guides for how to get women into, into history classes to use the images. So we will provide a link to your book, Sites on the Sixties, which is available on Amazon and other places. Um, and uh, we will also, Barbara is our board chair, so you can get in touch with her through our website as well, if you want to get in, t- grab some of the primary sources. Um, one more recommendation, an HBO, HBO documentary called Dear America, Letters Home from Vietnam. Mm. And it is actual letters, and they are very poignant. Not much about women, but it's it, it's such a good source uh, from Lieutenant so-and-so and Private so-and-so, and you, you really have a sense. And there are a lot of very famous actors who took part in reading these letters. It's a very moving documentary and teachers can excerpt pieces of it to use, uh, I think in class that, and I think it's pretty easily available. Well, Dr. Tischler, thank you so much for your time and your energy. This is amazing. I can't wait for teachers to get this into classes. Thank you. And again, where were the women? Everywhere. (laughs) Everywhere. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.